It's Thursday, November 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Pfizer vaccine has been approved for kids ages 5 to 11. And while there are a lot of concerns with giving the vaccine to children, the dosage has been adjusted. Children in this age range will only be getting 10 micrograms of RNA in each shot, versus the 30 micrograms for those 12 and up. Catherine Wu, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for why the dosage is less about weight and size and more about how the body can marshal a defense. Next, election night 2021 did not look good for Democrats. In a very closely watched race for governor in Virginia, Republican Glenn Youngkin pulled out the win over Terry McCullough. Messaging was off for Democrats and Youngkin proved that he could win without fully embracing Trump. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico, joins us for election night takeaways. Finally, residents in Minneapolis voted down the ballot measure that would have gotten rid of the police department in favor of a Department of Public Safety. People on both sides agree that police reform must be done there, but a majority did not want to dismantle the current structure. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News, joins us for all the fallout from question two. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Beyond protection for our children, pediatric vaccination can help us better protect our families and our community. Joining us now is Catherine Wu, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. U.S. health officials earlier this week gave the final sign off to the Pfizer vaccine for kids. This would be kids ages 5 to 11. There's been a lot of scrutiny going on with all of this. You know, a lot of parents that are concerned about, uh, you know, how this is all going to play out. All of that has been found to be safe and effective for kids. They approved it. But let's talk about dosing and uh, how the dosing goes for this, because for the kids, they're only getting 10 micrograms of RNA. So this is about a third less than what adults are getting. And there's been a lot made about all the different age cutoff ranges as well. So help us walk through some of this, Catherine. Yeah, so exactly as you said, you know, the the kids' dose is smaller. It's 10 micrograms. Adults get 30 micrograms. And this is specifically for that 5 to 11-year-old age range. Uh, If we get another set of authorizations for kids 4 and under, they're only going to be getting 3 micrograms, which is a tenth of the adult dose. You know, some of this might sound kind of intuitive, like, all right, smaller people, younger people, smaller doses, that seems reasonable. But getting into the math of how these cutoffs are set, like why this size or why this age might feel a little counterintuitive. Right. I think the, the first thing to know here is that, you know, a lot of parents, they might be most familiar with giving their kids medications like Tylenol. If you read the directions for that, it's going to say, okay, figure out how much your kid weighs and then dose them based on that. That logic makes sense for drugs, but it doesn't really quite translate over to vaccines. Vaccines are really given based on your kid's age because it's really based on the age of the immune system. And kids' immune systems are going to be kind of feistier, livelier, more easily kind of reactive to stimuluses than adults are, which means they're going to be able to learn more easily from a little bit less vaccine. Tell us a little bit about the clinical trials that they did to find the right dosage, because the initial test was four different dosage levels, which was the 30 micrograms, 20, 10, and 3. And they found some success with the first two, right? Three micrograms and 10 micrograms. And that's what they decided to to go with and continue studying. But tell me a little bit more about how, how that whole process went. What you just described is what researchers call a dose ranging study. It's exactly what it sounds like. They test a range of doses. And what they're looking is for a sweet spot. They want to give the person 
enough vaccine that it's going to prompt their immune system to respond to it, remember the vaccine so that, you know, they can fight off the actual virus at a later point, but not so much vaccine that, you know, it causes unnecessary side effects, everything from, you know, like uh, fever or chills or soreness um, when you get injected to things that are rarer and possibly more dangerous and might last a longer time. Generally speaking, the more vaccine you give, the higher the risk of side effects becomes. And so, You want to give the least amount of vaccine that's going to work so that you don't overshoot from the side effect perspective. And it seems like 10 micrograms really did that for this 5 to 11-year-old age group. They produced antibodies pretty comparable to what adults produce with the 30 microgram dose. And the side effects were actually less compared to the same age group that got 30 micrograms. So it seems like they really did hit that Goldilocks sweet spot there. There was a lot of concern, obviously, about side effects. And one of the things we had been hearing about were things like myocarditis, pericarditis, Mm -hmm. uh, affecting some younger people, mostly males, I think, is what it was kind of coming out to. But in this study for Pfizer, they didn't find any of that that had happened to any children. But they also said, you know, they didn't test as many, many kids as they could have to find that out. Right. And I think that's one of the tricky things here. This study was thousands of kids, which is not that small, but it's not big enough to detect a side effect that is happening on the scale of like, you know, dozens per millions, um, more like that. We probably won't get a full sense of the risk to kids of myocarditis, you know, until more people get this vaccine, which I realize puts parents in a, in a tough position. They're operating with a lot of uncertainty right now. But researchers did, you know, risk benefit analyses, like what are the benefits of giving this vaccine to kids? Obviously, the biggest is preventing COVID and preventing some of the long term outcomes from getting infected with this virus against what are the the possible risks, which we don't fully understand. And stacking that kind of known risk of COVID and all of its associated phenomena against the possible side effects of this vaccine, almost every single time the math came out as the benefits outweigh the risks. There's even reason to think that myocarditis might be less common in this age group. Um, You know, myocarditis can have a ton of different causes, including infections with viruses. Uh, COVID itself can cause myocarditis, and it actually tends to be more common, riskier, and worse than any myocarditis that comes with this vaccine. And the important thing to consider here is, based on what scientists know about myocarditis as it has occurred in other settings, there may actually be a link to testosterone. This is not fully understood yet, so I do want to caveat that very heavily. But that could explain why it does seem to be more common in younger men. And that could also be good news for kids who haven't yet hit puberty. That might put them at lower risk of this side effect. Catherine Wu, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Virginia, we won this thing! Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's go over all the fallout from Election Day. The big race that everybody was really tuning into was the Virginia governor's race. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, took down Terry McAuliffe. I think it was about 51 to 48 percent, although early on those, uh, <laughs> the, the disparity was much bigger. But there's a lot of interesting things that we can glean from what's going on. It doesn't look too good for Democrats going forward into the midterms next year. House and Senate majorities could be more vulnerable than ever. But there's a lot to unpack. So, David, let's start there in Virginia. 
Yeah, I think to say it doesn't look good is, you know, the understatement of the week. I mean, this is cataclysmic. And I think that people are rightfully drawing all sorts of conclusions from Virginia, but not because Glenn Youngkin won. If he had won by simply juicing the Trump base, by depressing Democratic turnout, kind of the old Trump playbook, maybe Democrats wouldn't be so concerned. But the way he won is just just devastating for Democrats. He clawed back voters in the suburbs, independents, did much better with women, all while overperforming Trump's numbers in some of the Trump country in Virginia. It's just recipe for disaster across the board for them. Tell me a little bit about the messaging that was going on, because it's obviously very important. It seemed like Terry McAuliffe was running a very national sort of campaign. Glenn Youngkin, too, at some point, right, he was talking about critical race theory and the school issue, but the school issue ended up becoming one of the top things in the governor's race, and the messaging just won out for him on that side. Yeah, on schools in particular, this is where Democrats could take some heart. I think there's broad agreement among Democrats that they've done a poor job messaging on critical race theory, and that McAuliffe in particular shot himself in the foot with that commentative date that in September, right, he said something like, parents shouldn't be telling schools what to be teaching the kids. So those are some discrete problems in Virginia that, you know, you could recover from if you're a Democrat. The bigger problem is that there was this lesson a little bit from California that in the recall that the way you boosted Democratic turnout was just relentlessly yoking your opponent to Trump, that he was still a viable figure to cast Republicans negatively with. And that just didn't play in Virginia. Yeah. The voters didn't buy it. So McAuliffe spent all this money, all this time, every other sentence he said you know, it was Trump. And it just didn't play. And if Trump, the bogeyman, doesn't work for Democrats, they have a real problem. Right. And we talked about that specifically when the California recall was happening and how effective a message that was to get people out in California obviously didn't happen here. But it shows for the GOP too, Republicans, they can win without Trump. So that's in Virginia. We're also looking at New Jersey, where the race for governor there, Democratic Governor Phil Murphy, the incumbent, had a really close race. I think it's still too close to call right now, but although he is in a very, very slight lead. Yeah, I think the expectation of most people there is that Murphy will eke it out. But this is almost more startling than the Virginia race, which was expected to be close. And Murphy was not expected to have a contest here in New Jersey. And again, it it just goes to how big a problem Democrats have. Biden is a drag on the Democratic Party right now. There's extreme frustration among the electorate with Democrats and their counter messaging against Trump just isn't working. So Democrats need to find an affirmative message like yesterday to campaign on in the midterms or else it's it's going to be a bloodbath next year. And get something passed, right? We've been going through this whole thing with the infrastructure bill, with the spending plan. I know progressives want to tie them both together, but right now, looking back, it seems like they should have passed that infrastructure bill when they could have, continue to work on the spending bill, and they could have had something to run on. So the breakup kind of in the Democratic Party is also the continuing issue. We have progressives, we have more moderate Democrats, and, and even uh, an election day that we saw yesterday, there was a lot of moderate wins for Democrats. They got overshadowed by some of these bigger races, but there were some wins for them. But having to deal with what's going on with the progressive wing of the party is something super important that they need to tackle quickly. 
Yeah, well, how you called it a breakup is, I think, perfectly on. I mean, the, criticize the media for talking about Democrats in disarray, but holy smokes, the Democrats are in disarray. As you mentioned, it was progressives took a lot of hits. The Minneapolis ballot measure, the Democratic Socialist who was running in Buffalo and fell short, the Seattle mayor's race that went to the moderate. And New York, too. Yeah, and New York, too, although that was cementing a race that was locked in earlier in the year. But yeah, and, but on the other hand, it's not like it's Bernie Sanders dragging the party down right now. It's uh, the guy who ran as the establishment moderate figure, Biden. So if you're a progressive, you're rightfully complaining, or you have at least a reasonable case to make, that if Democrats had gotten some of their progressive policies or ideas done, maybe voters would have something to be excited about. The, the point is just what you said, there's a breakup. Progressives did not see this as a repudiation of the progressive agenda. Moderates see it as a need to be more moderate. People like Manchin and Cinema are probably even more empowered now, and they're, they're beyond moderate. They're like the stickiest centrists of the bunch. So how the party congeals in the next, you know, we're talking a matter of months now. The midterms are, are right upon us. It's a real tricky situation. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. The bright lights of uh, the national press and the world have been shining down on Minneapolis now for, gosh, about a year and a half. And what we are seeing right now is that Minneapolis is shining back even brighter. Joining us now is Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Janelle. Thanks so much for having me. Wanted to have you back to get the update on what happened on Election Day in Minneapolis. The big thing there was question two. This was the question on the ballot to see if residents wanted to do away with the police department, start a new Department of Public Safety, and really, you know, make some big changes to how law enforcement works there. The ballot initiative ended up failing. 56% said no. They did not want to do that. 43% said yes. So, Janelle, what did we see in this vote? Yes. So it's interesting because sort of both sides, two separate coalitions who had been on opposite ends, yes for Minneapolis, which petitioned to get it on the ballot. They sort of claimed slight victory. They said that they at least started the conversation. They got people talking. They got people envisioning what a different police department or public safety department could look like. And on the flip side, all of Minneapolis, a separate coalition which had opposed the measure, they said that it proved that they were right, the outcome of this voting on this measure, and they claimed victory too. But I've been speaking to legal experts today, and they say that they caution kind of either side from declaring full victory because at the end of the day, like you said, the breakdown over... It wasn't an overwhelming defeat. It wasn't like 80% to 20%. There was still a strong percentage of, of residents who did support this measure and wanted to see it pass. And therefore, they cautioned against people interpreting this as an endorsement of the police department. They think that it, that voters still did communicate that they're unhappy with police in the city right. and they do want to see change. Yeah, and that's definitely really what you see kind of across the board. Everybody still agrees, it seems like, on both sides of it, that there needs to be some type of police reform. And we saw what happened in Minneapolis specifically after the death of George Floyd, massive protests all over. There's polls by local media outlets that say 53% have unfavorable opinions of police. So it really is an issue that isn't going to go away. But for the big, broad brushstroke of uh, what people wanted to do, that part of it failed, at least for now. It has failed. And 
also, just recently, just shortly before we began speaking, it was declared that the mayor was reelected, Jacob Fry, and he had opposed the measure. So now there's all this debate about whether what changes will he impose, if any, because he had opposed the measure and people have been critical of him saying that he does not come down hard enough on the Minneapolis Police Department and that he has not implemented enough reform in the police department. So it will be interesting to see what he gleans from this outcome, you know, whether he takes it to heart and incorporates some changes or whether he dismisses it and says, the residents spoke and they voted right. against it. So and, and let's we talk, be done with this. We talked about this issue last week where if question two had passed, it would have given the mayor himself and the city council more power with regards to the police department and how it would shake out this Department of Public Safety. They would get to pick the commissioner and all that. So it's interesting, too, that he was opposed to it on that front. A larger question about all of this, though, because, you know, as we mentioned, we saw all of the unrest, the protests after the death of George Floyd, everybody calling for police reforms around the country. We saw a huge cry for defund the police. But that very quickly kind of dissipated, it seemed like, even with Democrats calling for police reforms, the defund police kind of call out quickly went away. It wasn't a winning message for a lot of people. It wasn't. And even people who supported this measure told me, for example, Keith Ellison, the Minnesota attorney general, he supported the measure. He lives in Minneapolis. He had encouraged people to vote yes. And he told me in in an interview recently that he feels like that phrase to fund the police is just so problematic and that he doesn't use it. He tries to distance himself from it. And city council members who originally had used that language immediately after George Floyd's death, they also tried to distance themselves from it because the phrasing is damaging. And what they now see is that you have to kind of be as specific as possible in telling the residents what you plan to do. Don't just say blanket, blanketly, like defund the police. Tell them we want to add social workers. We want to add violence interrupters to the police department because that language is triggering for some people and they just exit the conversation. They immediately don't even glean what you're saying and join the conversation. They just shut down. And so what are the next steps there? The police department will remain intact. I guess there are going to be efforts now to holding police more accountable, but there won't be any type of big structural change. So what are the next steps for for both sides, for both groups? So both sides said that the next step is that they want to still hold police accountable. Yes, for Minneapolis, which had gotten the measure on the ballot, they said that they will continue to push for the changes that they wanted. And interestingly, the city, the police department is operating with about a third less officers it had than before it did before George Floyd's death. So they're operating kind of at a deficit. So they need to somehow regain trust and retain officers and attract people to join the force at the same time that they're dealing with homicide rates that haven't been seen since the mid-1990s. So they're dealing with a lot right now and trying to overhaul a system while they're also dealing with an increase in homicide and just distrust among the community. They don't have the community's trust and it's crucial to doing their jobs effectively. So the the city, much more the police department, is still grappling with a lot in the wake of George Floyd's death. Janelle Griffith, national reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media. 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.